Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. My guests today are the legendary husband and wife team of Davis Finney and Connie Carpenter Finney. It's my honor to have them on the CoachCast, as it can't be overstated how important Connie and Davis have been to American cycling. Connie is a member of the U.S. Bicycling Hall of Fame and won the first ever women's Olympic road race in the 1984 LA Olympics. However, that was not her first Olympics. She became an Olympic speed skater at the age of 14, making her the youngest female winter Olympian at the 1972 Sapporo Games. Davis, whose nickname was the cash register, as he is the winningest American cyclist of all time with over 300 victories. He is also a member of the US Bicycling Hall of Fame. Davis has won two stages of the Tour de France and earned bronze medal in the team time trial at the 84 LA Olympics. Davis also has Parkinson's and is dedicated to making a positive difference for thousands of others through his Davis Finney Foundation for Parkinson's. Please visit davisfinneyfoundation.org to learn more about the foundation and how you can help others manage Parkinson's. I hope you enjoy the show. Connie Davis, thanks so much, so much for uh, getting on the CoachCast with me. You're welcome. Thank you, Dirk. It's good to be here. <laughs> it's such an honor for me. I think seeing you guys, I grew up in Fort Collins, which is about 30 miles away from Boulder, but Boulder was kind of the epicenter of cycling and still is in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And so much of, of my life and what I've done with my cycling career, my business career, you know, is kind of has its roots back in the early eighties and the heyday of cycling. And because of how I saw you guys race and, uh, you know, all the stories of Tour de France, Olympics, et cetera, it really just set the tone for my life. And I never looked back and it's all I ever thought of for the rest of my life. So it's such an honor. I think we'll get some great words of wisdom from you guys. Um, I think, you know, a large topic, however, you know, that, that really kind of consumes obviously your lives today is, is Davis's Parkinson's. It took a big turn, I'm sure, in terms of what you guys were um, experiencing, you know, in, in your cycling days. And can you tell us some more background around um, when did you find out um, that you were diagnosed with Parkinson's and how has that progressed, um, you know, through today? Well, I was diagnosed 20 years ago, so it's been some amount of time that I've lived with the disease. And, you know, diagnosis was not easy. Certainly 20 years ago, no one was wanting to look at me who was an otherwise very fit and very active guy as having a disease which was then at that point more typically seen in the older popu- population. But once the, the diagnosis was made, then we sat around and fig- figured out how to live with it and live well, well with it. Well, I think you can hear right now from his voice uh, that ch- you know, there's so many different challenges in Parkinson's. 
So that when we, you know, the thing that brought Davis to the doctor was his inability to hold a microphone uh, when he was down in Australia working for television. (laughs) Um, So the tremor is usually what brings you to the doctor's office, but Parkinson's um, really affects uh, so much of your body. It's a slowing down of so many processes, and it's a disease that affects a very small part of your brain that you you really need because it's it's the part of the brain that produces um, uh, basically smooth, uh, coordinated muscular action. <laughs> yeah, right. And um, and so what happened with Davis was, you know, he was in, he was just traveling a lot. I thought he was just overtired, you know, but um, the tremor is what really gets your attention. And, you know, at the time, not very many uh, younger people uh, had been diagnosed. And, and yet at that same time, Michael J. Fox had come out right. uh, with his announcement that he had Parkinson's. And so, you know, I looked at that and I looked at Davis and I was like, wow, is, is this possible? But, um, but certainly uh, it certainly was. And it's, uh, it's a difficult diagnosis because it's not like you just take a, you know, take a blood test or something. Right. And so we went through a lot of different um, stages trying to figure it out. Um, Mostly because he'd also, you know, had such a long career as a pro cyclist and many accidents. And so was this something, you know, related to an accident, something related to his cervical spine? We didn't know. And uh, once we got the diagnosis, then, you know, we had a whole nother <laughs> journey to, you know, figure out best doctor to see and, and you know, how to proceed. But um uh, you know, our you know what we did, Dirk, was we went to Italy for three years. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> what was it? What was that? That purpose of that? Well, initially, it was it was for me a way to get out of town and and get into a different environment where not everyone I felt knew me and was microscoping me for symptoms mm-hmm. and and it worked really really well for that because in Italy I was just sort of the shaky American <laughs> that lived down the street mm-hmm. and they're very forgiving of disability there and very su- supportive of of people with some evident disability Ability. You know, it's interesting because, you know, we went for one year. Part of it was we had we were already running our bike camp business, uh, bringing large groups, you know, 30, 40 people to Tuscany and to the Dolomites and, um, you know, annually several trips a year. And we both loved Italy. Davis had spent quite a bit of time there as a pro. Um, and we wanted to give the kids the gift of um, being bilingual. Uh, so it, it served many purposes. We we did have business interests there. We had um, this gift uh, that we wanted to give our children. And we had uh, also the gift uh, for Davis to buy some time to uh, grapple with the diagnosis, to reinvent himself, if you will. Interestingly, one of the other things that you notice when someone has Parkinson's, especially a young person, is, you know, he was a little unsteady on his feet. And so one of the immediate assumptions people make is that you are um, drunk. 
<laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so, right. You know, you kind of want to have a, a T-shirt that says, you know, give me I'm, a few minutes. I'm not drunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I need, you know, I have to fumble with my change. It takes a little longer, but. You know, he used to laugh that when he'd, he'd go to do an errand and, you know, he, he typically brought our younger, our daughter along because she would help make change and because her Italian was pretty good pretty quickly. Uh-huh. But, uh, and, you know, he was having trouble speaking English on some days because it was just hard uh-huh. to, you yeah. know, you know his, his speed of transmission was just really slowed down, which I always said was very cruel for Davis because he was the fastest cat in the jungle when he was racing his bike. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the cash register, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, so you know what? It it was we went for one year and we ended up staying for three because, you know, the first year took a lot of adjustment. The second year was kind of like a honeymoon, and then the third year, uh, Taylor entered high school, and we realized uh, we didn't really like the high school scene in Italy. It was a little too rigid. Uh, it did not promote curiosity (laughs) in learning and you know it's time to come home go boulder high (laughs) um so i see you guys out on the trails i see you on the roads you know and you ride an e-bike i see you know what we'll be seeing each other almost weekly i think the pandemic there for a while out on the open trails and that certainly gave me a lot of strength you know seeing you out there and not even knowing the struggles it took to to get to that point is that a a regular routine can you can you do that every day you know how 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 has that become a part of your um, davis has to do that every day (laughs) yes got it I mean, yeah, through our foundation, one thing that we, we've spent some funds in research of is the benefit of exercise for Parkinson's people, as well as the benefit of specifically riding a bike. And in both those cases, both exercising in general and riding a bike, it's as Connie said, it's kind of a mandatory prescription mm-hmm. for those of us who are diagnosed with P- PD. You really just don't have a choice. So, they, so it's interesting, Dirk, because they did some studies um, and well discovered that uh, if you if you ride a bike, if a person with Parkinson's is kind of forced, you actually call it forced exercise. You know, when you push a little harder than you're used to. You're right. If a person with Parkinson's does that, their symptoms ameliorate a bit. Wow. So why is that? You know, we don't right. actually understand, um, you know, all that goes on in the brain. It's sort of the last frontier, as everyone knows, especially in our, our you know, global quest to cure Alzheimer's. <laughs> right. Um but but I think what we what we found and what's been documented even recently in for example Sanjay Gupta's book um, you know he's a neurosurgeon and kind of the you know the face of neurology for a lot of Americans and his recent book said you know the best thing you can do um, as you age to maintain your cognitive strength is to exercise and right. to be social. So it's interesting because everybody thinks they should be doing puzzles or take certain vitamins or, you know, all kinds of different, um, (laughs) uh, different tactics. But the real tactic is, you know, to stay social, which, of course, has been hard during this time of COVID, but stay social and stay physically active. 
because as we get older, especially, we need to stay active. So it's ironic that um, that Davis found through it's actually a, a Jay Albert's research at the Cleveland Clinic that um, that riding a bike is actually uh, possibly neuroprotective and at least neuroenhancing for people with Parkinson's. Yeah. Yeah. And that social component is so important. And if you can combine the two, obviously throughout life, that's, that's the best of all worlds, you know, getting out there with the group rides or the group walks or whatever it might be. So definitely. Yeah. Isn't that the beauty of cycling though, is that we can do it with other people. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And that's why you always see Connie and I together is because of that socialization aspect. I mean, that's a lot of what our marriage is built on, is staying in touch with each other daily through conversation. Wow. Yeah, and I think that helps a lot is just to be able to, I think Davis converses better when we're out on the bike or out for a walk. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's healthy for the relationship, but also just healthy for our minds to to have those conversations. And, and we listen to a lot of podcasts too, which, uh, you know, again, it's like, there's so many great ways to stimulate your brain and stimulate conversation. So after 40 years of being together, you know, we don't run out of things to say to each other. <laughs> I, I just had a flashback. The last time I saw you guys where there were other people exercising and we were all out there doing the same darn thing was doing laps in North Boulder Park on skis. Oh, yeah. And that was uh, last winter before COVID. But I remember seeing Davis out there doing the classic. Mm-hmm. And you were skating. And yeah, yeah. it's a good, good time. Yeah, and so, that's been yeah. frustrating too, though, to be honest with you, because Davis was the most beautiful um, cross-country skier, and that's been a difficult... Uh, we're, we're waiting for an e-bike version of uh, Nordic skis. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yes. Yes. That would be awesome at 10,000 feet to have a little added right? boost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Connie, yeah. what was that, Davis? No, I was just going to say something that's now escaped my Well, no, yeah, I think you were just going to say that it's hard. It's hard for his, he has a lot of foot control. And Mm -hmm. so it's very hard for him to clear the ski on the snow. But he did, uh, he did strengthen up quite a bit, strengthen his legs, work on dexterity so he could get back out to some alpine skiing. Hmm. All right. um, Yeah, because gravity works well. Gravity. In that sense. Just don't do jump turns. No. Yeah. So he still gets out to do that, which has been great. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that I feel like is that, well, I miss being able to Nordic ski well, certainly. I don't, I just don't focus on that as a big loss because there's just other ways that I've replaced Nordic skiing and, and whether it's cycling and using an e bike. Or I also, uh, Dirk got him doing yoga this year, which has been uh-huh. uh, really yeah. good because again, with the feet being so unstable and balance being a problem, um, just, you know, being able to stand on one foot is, uh, it's a lot of work for Davis and he does it pretty well. So yeah, you got to use it or lose it. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, that was one thing I was going to say. You know, so it, talking skiing is a kind of a good segue. Uh, you know, Connie, not a lot of people realize that you, your first Olympics was 1972 in Sapporo as a 14-year-old speed skater. Yeah. That is just amazing to, to think about. And, you know, 
so you grew up in a speed skating family or how did how that come about uh listen dirk i'm working on a memoir i've been working on this for a long time but i've been trying to sort of figure out how how i got from point a to point b (laughs) (laughs) and you know honestly no i grew up i have three brothers uh we i grew up in wisconsin i grew up across the street from a a playground that was flooded in the winter. So we ran across the street every night when the lights Mm. turned on and skated our winters away. Mm. Uh, I just, fortunately, speed skating, and not a lot of people know this, but speed skating was one of the early sports, you know, even in the 60s where girls had the same number of events as boys at the meets because it was a family sport. My family participated in hockey. So I had to kind of beg my parents to finally let me join the speed skating club. I didn't do the 10,000 hours of training that uh, everybody (laughs) talks about now. (laughs) I didn't have anybody measuring my training. I just... Oh, and also training wasn't a thing. What training? Oh, well, well, training, (laughs) training for speed skating was a thing, but but actual running was, was not a not thing. <laughs> so uh, as I write about this, the, the, the funny thing is, is I try to put people in the time frame of the late 60s, early 70s, when um, I would, I would, I couldn't bear the thought of any of my classmates seeing me out for a run. Wow. This just was not done. So I either ran, uh, I rode my bike across town to train in the summer um, I didn't care if people I didn't know saw me, but <laughs> anybody <laughs> wow. knew me to see me. And then I also um, would run by cover of darkness, which did not please my mother. But I, uh, you know, so if I ran at night, uh, you know, it just looked like somebody, you know, there was a robber in the neighborhood. <laughs> so I, um, but, you know, having said that too, the Olympics were a much smaller deal back then. And um, it was really a priceless experience all the way around. But I, you know, just uh, dear reader, dear listener, please listen and think, what were you doing in ninth grade? <laughs> you know? Was totally unprepared for this as a as a. Well, you placed seventh, kid. right? What's that? We placed seventh. Yeah, I placed seventh, which ironically was uh, what Taylor placed at his first Olympics. Huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how do you, so how do, how do you get from speed skating to to cycling? Uh, well, you know, um, if you look at the position of a speed skater and you just slip a bike under the seat, <laughs> you can see that, you know, I had the, I definitely had the, uh, <laughs> muscle definition, but you know, truly I, I stopped speed skating because I got injured right before the Olympic trials in 1976 and immediately just started because my older brother had been a bike racer and because Sheila Young, you know, who then married Jim Markowitz, mm-hmm. uh, was a world champion in both speed skating and cycling at the time. She was a track sprinter. Huh. So I had, a, I had my brother and I had Sheila kind of leading the way there to say, you know, why don't you try this? Because the ankle injury I had didn't allow me to go around corners at speed on speed skates, but I could, uh, you know, push the pedal up and down. And, um, I won the nationals the first year that I raced. (laughs) It kind of, I I didn't have a very, like, uh, you know, I didn't have any, I didn't have much time to think about speed skating after I got into cycling and cycling was just so much more fun. I mean, it was warm, uh, (laughs) so many different places. I wasn't going around in circles all the time. I mean, yeah. And then, and then the LA Olympics, I mean, 
at some point they announced that the women would have the very first ever road race in the Olympics. Yeah, they announced that uh, right about the time I was graduating from uh, University of California, Berkeley. Okay. And uh, I just happened to fall in love with this guy that's sitting next to me here. <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was pretty much done with cycling. I didn't think huh. I would bike race anymore. I thought I would, you know, go off and do what every college graduate does, uh, try to figure things out uh, off the playing field. But uh, Davis uh, actually told me that I hadn't lived up to my potential as a cyclist. <laughs> Good. Good thing he did that. <laughs> I guess he was right. <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to be with him. And and, um, and so we, uh, fortunately, you know, 1981, there when I graduated and there were just so many um, corporate sponsors coming into sports like cycling because of the 84 Olympics. And um, so we had quite a bit of support and there was just so much more interest for women cycling the minute the Olympics were announced um, that it, it gave me a real definitive goal too, and maybe some unfinished business from speed skating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it was such an amazing day in LA. Um, what Rebecca Twig was second. Yep. Is that right? And did you then hear retire that that next day? I did. Yeah. I just I was a very high strung athlete. <laughs> well, and also, Dirk, you have to be reminded that there was no professional yeah. women cycling in in the world right. at this point. Yeah. And so Connie had done everything that she really needed to do between being a world champion on the track and an Olympic champion on the road. And so she was, as she may say high strung, I'll just say, I would say she was highly, highly curious and highly interested in pursuing other things besides just sport. Yeah, and I had to, you know, Dirk, back then I had to race mostly in men's races. If I went to Europe to race, they were just, um, they were kind of sub-junior boy level, <laughs> the way they were organized. There just wasn't any um, circuit for women's cycling. And really the only highlight of the year, aside from, you know, world championships or Olympics then, was the Coors Classic, which was such right. an event here in Colorado. and. You know, I loved that, but I also felt like um, it just, yeah, just there wasn't enough there to hold me. That was for sure. Yeah. And Davis, well, Davis got to turn pro and go race in the Tour de France. I didn't have that option. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that that was I know, and that's you know, you mentioned the Coors, and that just changed my life. You know, as a thirteen-year-old boy growing mm -hmm. up in northern Colorado, and I would ride my bike fifty miles one direction just to go see part of the stage, <laughs> and see you guys fly by in thirty seconds, and I'd ride fifty miles back home. You know, um, Davis, how about you and your your cycling history? How, you know, what got you into cycling? Well, it was really seeing the very first Red Zinger stage. Which predated the, the Coors, you know. Right. Precursor to the Coors Classic. And, and I was uh, just a high school sophomore who went over to North Boulder Park to watch this bike race with my friends, not knowing 
anything about bike racing. And we we sat there with our faces, you know, pressed through the fence. <laughs> and the riders are going by, by like inches from you. Just like you, Dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was so thrilling. And I just remember I got on my 10-speed and rode home and announced to my parents that I was going to be a bike racer, <laughs> you know, which that, that hit with a resounding thud. You know, his dad was an aerospace engineer, so uh, he had uh, literally loftier goals for his son. <laughs> right. Yeah. High standards that you lived up to. Winning a cyclist in, um, uh, in U.S. history you know, you won the bronze in the L.A. Olympics in the team time trial, won the 88 Coors Classic, two stages of the Tour de France, first ever American to win a single stage in the Tour de France. Just went on to do amazing, amazing um, results. What, out of all those results, what was your proudest moment? I could give the easier answer, which would be the Bordeaux stage win in the Tour in 1987, but but as <laughs> as we talk about it, there's other wins that I was a part of that were not mine personally, like Andy right. Hampson winning the Giro. That was really a staggering accomplishment for a group of goofy North Americans. <laughs> And, and and as I think back, I would say also the eight, 82 Coors class, Classic winning in North Boulder Park, mm-hmm. which was just such a dream I'd had mm-hmm. ever since I'd watched the race some five years earlier. And you might remember those days, Dirk, but I mean, we had somewhere between 30 and 50,000 people in that park. <laughs> I know. I was actually there that day. They would let the crowd into the street for the podium. I mean, we were inches away from you at your toes, you know, at the podium. (laughs) And, you know, one year I remember I talked my way into getting a VIP pass and then I talked my way onto a moto. And they're like, are you 18? And I was like 16. I'm like, yeah. You know, I looked like Taylor, you know, I was like, yeah. Looked older than my age, and so I signed the waiver and got on the back of a VIP moto, and I did a few laps, you know, with with you guys, and uh, those were amazing times. And Andy Andy Hampston, you know, that changed my life as well. You know, I I had an art class in middle school, and I drew like Andy Hampston climbing, you know, in the snow. That was like my <laughs> my art yeah. my, my art project was drawing Andy Hampston winning the Giro. That's awesome. Well, you know, one of the one of the saddest things about uh, Davis's voice problems with Parkinson's is that he used to tell these stories, um, you know, from the days of the Peloton. And I do wish we had recorded those um, <laughs> because he had the most amazing sound effects. And he would talk <laughs> about um, Andy at that at that uh, Giro and their Italian. Um, they had this very eccentric Italian sponsor who really helped to diffuse Andy's um, nervousness. And Davis could tell these stories with just incredible sound effects and, you know, imitate accents <laughs> so well. And, 
And the thing that I always took away from that was just, you know, these guys were such a bunch of um, misfits over there, <laughs> really disrupting, you know, before anybody ever right. used the term disrupting, you know, yeah. <laughs> the way right. we do now, like disrupting the norm. These guys were the original disruptors in cycling. Well, I mean, they were so unified as a team and they were so good. <laughs> Well, because they were so fired up. <laughs> we were we were good on some days and others not so good. That too. But but it was very cool to be a part of cycling in the eighties to be able to introduce, you know, the first female swanier, Shelley versus into the pro peloton. Right. Yeah. And people just don't realize how much has changed. In, in the years between then and now. And, yeah, and you know, when I stopped racing in 84, I thought I would go and live with Davis in Europe and I would support him, you know, at the races and stuff. And that, right. at the time, there was no place for a woman uh, to be anywhere near the men's peloton. And in fact, even up until the late 70s, women weren't even allowed in the follow cars at the Tour de France, you know. <laughs> right. Wow. I mean, it just has changed so much. Let's go into this then and now comparison. You know, talk about uh, women's racing and where, how do you see that? How are we better off today? I mean, probably well, many ways, but yeah. just from your perspective. You know, here's the thing with women's cycling that's just so disappointing is when I did retire after 1984 from the time, you know, that I only raced for eight years, you know, I only raced from 76 through 84. And I actually even took a year off in, in there when I was in school and I rode on the crew at college and stuff. But I, um, I, you know, I thought women's cycling was just going to keep going up and up and it did for a couple of years. But what happened was suddenly the, the Tour de France, gained more American and a more American audience. You know, it started to be on TV more. These guys were racing over there. These guys, meaning Davis's team. And then um, we had races like the Tour de Pont and the Tour de Trump where suddenly there was men's only professional stage racing in America. And that really relegated the women because one of the advantages I had when we did have big races in the U.S., we normally had women's racing alongside the men, and suddenly we had these big races, primarily in the East Coast, with no women. And I think that that gave permission almost to whether it was USA Cycling or just the sponsors to say, oh, well, we don't need the women. <laughs> and I think the women's, women's racing has really suffered, you know, into the early 90s. Um, and... It just stagnated. And then right. we had the Lance years where the Tour de France was just, you know, like the biggest show on earth, <laughs> you know, as far as cycling was concerned and and in maybe all of sport. And suddenly the women were just further and further ignored and marginalized so that at the same time the women were developing and there's really just like fabulous women racing out there and there mm -hmm. have been for decades, but they just weren't getting the attention. They weren't getting the, you know, the fan support. They weren't getting on television. 
Um, UCI only did, which, you know, International Cycling Union only did the, the bare minimum. But I do, I, I told you this once before that I do blame it all on Donald Trump. <laughs> George Trump. <laughs> and, uh, and those years that, that really started, um, I think, a big decline in, in or at least it, it, it just held women cycling back. And I, I have long said that if, you know, you had Perry Roubaix on the same day for the men and the women as they do the Tour of Flanders, um, but if all classics were like that, right, the fans would be there, the TV would be set up. Um, Absolutely. You know, we, we just have a lot more exposure. And, you know, when you watch these women race, they're good and it's exciting. Absolutely. <laughs> you just don't get enough chance to watch. Yeah, I've, I've you know, I, I've seen a good trend of more women's racing and men's, you know, being live streamed, right? The world right. championships, all the cyclocross races are so, I mean, everybody tells me they'd rather, rather watch the female, you know, cyclocross races because they're so exciting. Yeah. You don't know who's going to win, right? Um, so more of that, I've heard a minimum wage um, for pro teams as well is going to be equal to men finally. There's yeah, actually, they're bringing that up, which I hope, um, I hope the women's sponsors can... Uh, help make that happen and not just shut down teams. That's the other problem. Right. You know, so the point of cyclocross though is, so as you know, our daughter Kelsey was a cross country ski racer at the world cup level and women's cross country skiing gets the same attention as men because they're on a closed course like cyclocross where mm -hmm. you're doing many loops. The races aren't so long, you know, they're under an hour. <laughs> right. And that's the other thing that's happened to pro men's cycling. I feel like they just get harder and longer and more point, point to point, and it becomes impossible to cover women's racing and men's racing at the same time because it's it's just not economically feasible. And I think this, the fans deserve more circuit races, and I think if we had more circuit races, um, we could showcase the women as well as the men better. I don't think longer and harder. <laughs> you know, the, the way – the way of the world is that um, once the compact um, crank systems were developed, <laughs> all of a sudden the pros could ride up a lot steeper roads than they did in our day. You know, we, yeah. we that's the other thing is our gearing. We, Davis, <laughs> what, was the, what was the smallest gearing you were able to race at the end of your career? 41, 23. <laughs> yeah, 41. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. <laughs> you don't right. ride up the, you know, Zonkalan in a <laughs> 41, <Yeah>. 23. <laughs> wow. And so, you know, so it's changed so much. So because the, so the gearing allows them to go up these little goat trails, but then more and more it goes away from a physique, like, you know, your physique or Taylor's physique or Davis's physique, you know? And so now we have a specialty of cyclists that's uh, mm -hmm. just, you know, smaller waif like really. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you know, on technology, Davis, there's so much now that the cyclists have, you know, disc brakes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what do you wish you had the most back then when you were racing that, that, you know, everybody well, has today? Probably a what, a way to measure what, mm. because we, we only ever had the little Avocet computers that would tell us the distance and speed. Yeah. And that was a big deal. Of the, <laughs> the ride that day. And I remember wearing my first heart rate watch, which was made by Timex and had a plug that went from oh, the right. belt on my chest <laughs> up through, <laughs> through my jersey. 
and down my arm and into the watch. Wow. <laughs> and wow. So, so that's really changed the advent of modern training and understanding yeah. what production is really, as you would can attest, has really revolutionized yeah. the sport. But but even going But it's almost from, taken it too far though, don't you think? Because now that you've got a whole team of people looking at the writer's data that aren't even talking to the writer, they're just looking at the data to determine who's gonna start in what races. Yeah. You would have gone crazy if that was the oh, criteria. I mean, I'm sure. <laughs> because I was not classically a trainer. I was a racer and yeah, you I were thrived a on racing. Yeah. Right. But 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 other things that have changed so much which which I went through a little bit in my career was was just toe toe clips to mm. step in pedals, yeah. mm-hmm. and I remember the first day I used STI on my bike, which was on this night was back in 1990, so it would have been in the Tour de Trump era, <laughs> where where I was. It was just mind blowing to be able to shift at will in or out of the saddle. Yeah, in a sprint. It used to be you had to get in your gear and hope you stayed there. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. yeah because if you had to sit down and shift, which was the old school way when yeah. the shift lovers were on the down tube. Um, you know, you basically lost. But really, I mean, it's changed so much just in that basic. Yeah, it's funny because the frame geometry, yeah, that's changed a little bit. But a lot of the basic, you know, bike frame um, appearance, to mo- you know, is, mm-hmm. you know, the same in some ways. But then everything else is so different. But, you know, when Taylor first started racing in, on the track and, you know, I had been a world champion on the track. So he'd ask me, Mom, what kind of disc wheels did you use? And I was like, Taylor? Can't help you with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, we didn't have wind tunnel testing and, you know, we didn't have any of it. So I think um, on the one hand, our, you know, when we raced, it was easier that way because there weren't as many decisions to be made and nowadays i think with a lot of the you know the way things are controlled by the bike sponsors or the you know the component suppliers the riders have very little choice in what they use yeah when you get to that pro level it's a lot is kind of determined for you in in a lot of respects the general public can Get away, you know, can can dial in their their equipment choices better than the pros can yeah. <laughs> in yeah. some regard. So you, you know, you mentioned Taylor; he was world champion. You know, pursuit. Um, you know, did all kinds of classics, Tour de France, etc. But you got to see his career path, which was, I assume, just so dramatically different than than yours. What about the the um, influence of coaching within your careers versus, you know, Taylor's and the influence of coaches or, you know, the training techniques, et cetera. Um, how, how would you compare those two um, generations? We didn't have um, much coaching advice. You know, Eddie B was our national coach at the time, and he did bring, you know, some good ideas uh, for training. But Davis and I basically um, you know, coached each other, <laughs> supported yeah. each other. And most of it was, you know, most elite athletes train too much. 
And so the key is to know when you've done too much and when you need to rest. And I think that we could help each other um, more than anything, you know, when to push a little bit harder, which was the rare occasion because normally we needed to be told when to rest and that resting was okay. And yeah, it I sounds like you were, you could be honest with each other. Yes. Yeah. Well, and and Davis has always had a really good eye. He could see this in Taylor too. He can look at your legs basically until <laughs> whether they're ready to go or not. Yeah. <laughs> the horse whisperer of cycling. Yeah, kind of. Well, I mean, <laughs> I just remember seeing Taylor down in Mexico at the Junior Worlds where he was, you know, not expected anything great to happen. And I just watched him warm up. And I'm thinking, yeah, he's meddling today <laughs> just because his legs look so good. Yeah, you could always tell. I think that um, I think what Davis brought to Taylor, too, during his early years was, you know, they would sit and work on the bike together a lot. And um, and I just think that it was – and Davis was just kind of a calming influence at the races. And then when Davis couldn't travel – as much with him than I would travel with him because, um, you know, one of the things that we knew, I mean, a lot of it was from my own experiences as a speed skater cast adrift in the world that teenagers need <laughs> support. And he was thrown into such an adult situation so early that, you know, I think that that was as important as anything, but, you know, he, he connected with Neil Henderson really early and Neil is a pretty playful guy. He's like a mm -hmm. nuts and bolts guy, but he's also pretty playful, which helped Taylor as a junior. So Taylor had, you know, he just, you know, in the end of the day, he's the guy standing at the starting line, you know, and he knew that too. But he had a lot of people that were wishing him well and uh, tried not to put excessive pressure on him, you know. But the minute he turned pro, then all bets were off because, uh, you know, that's just such a harsh world and it's not a development based world as, as I'm sure you know right. Dirk. Um, and so if you're not you know if you if you, if you're not really well cared for in that time um, you know a lot of guys disappear in their early 20s when they turn pro they just it's just too hard and it's too impersonal it's not like Davis's pro team was a fully formed team that went over there and sure they picked up new guys along the way and it was an international team um, at the end but you you guys were all invested in each other. Yeah, I remember saying to Taylor that 7-Eleven, the team, would have reunions every five years, which is still happening to this day. And he goes, man, I cannot imagine any bike team I've ever been on ever getting <laughs> together after the fact. Yeah. Right. And yeah, that's, true. Yeah, he missed the... He missed that, and he would have he would have done well in that because Taylor actually really likes working for his teammates, you know, and and I think that that's not something that's just automatic. Uh, I think you you need to uh, it, it needs to develop, you know, like Ron Kiefel and Davis uh, together were such a dynamic duo, um, and that comes over time, and and um, you know the proof is in the pudding. You guys won so many races and. Uh, supported each other in a way that's almost impossible to imagine now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember li I was at living at the Olympic training center and I was about 17 and 
uh, you and uh, Ron came down to speak to the group of juniors. I remember know. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the old Olympic Training Center. Such that was such a special day for us to have you guys come and, and speak to us. And yeah, That's in great. one of those Quonset huts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> old military compound. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I'd love to keep going. You know, I think you just wrapped up. Didn't you just wrap up a seven-day training block in the Sufferlandria? To well, yeah, not a not a training block. It was <laughs> it was like an event. You know, these guys, the tour Sufferlandria guys. Let me just tell you really quickly because this is a great story, and then uh, we can maybe close with this. But I met the guy David McQuillan, who founded the Sufferfest in mm-hmm. Melbourne when I was there for the uh, under 23 worlds that Taylor was competing in. And so we were down there and, and I met him in the UCI like VIP area. And t- turns out that he's from, his family's from Fort Collins, I think, but he, he was, a uh, he was uh, living in um, Singapore <laughs> and he'd started this business, you know, this training video business. And I ended up using his training videos for the classes I was teaching up at the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine. Well, over time, we developed a friendship and he wanted to do something for Davis. So they have this event that they call the Tour of Sufferlandria, which is the greatest grand tour of a mythical nation. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and David now lives in Tasmania, which is where his wife is from. And so uh, they started fundraising during this um, this week long event, and you know we've done this now. This is our ninth, ninth year, and these guys have raised a million dollars for us. We, we raised than more than a million. We raised three hundred eighty five thousand dollars last week. Wow! Um, with six thousand participants from all around the world. <laughs> Wow. So really a cool event and a really cool fundraiser for the foundation. And I think a lot of people with Parkinson's can ride it because you do it on a, in your home on a stationary right. bike. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So Davis did the whole thing. That's awesome. Awesome. Hey, how can fi- people find out more about the foundation and if they want to donate or just learn more about what you guys the are doing? The foundation is really our pride and joy. The work that they're doing out there is so helpful for people with Parkinson's. Yeah, our mission is uh, is to help people with Parkinson's live well today. And so we're not looking for a cure. We think that Michael J. Fox and other foundations are doing a great job with that. But we really do help people live better today. So if anybody's listening to this that knows anyone with Parkinson's or wants more information or wants to get involved, it's the davisfinneyfoundation.org. Mm-hmm. Or right. .com or DPF. If just, you know, we do great work and we have a free manual that we send to anybody who needs it or wants it. If you have a friend with Parkinson's that seems underserved, uh, we'd like to help. So that's what we do. And it's called the Every Victory Counts Manual, <laughs> which of course comes directly from bike racing. And, and all the sprinting we used to do for town signs and whatnot. Yeah, and you have to raise your arms to the victory. Yeah. And that's every right. victory counts, baby. Yeah, <laughs> that's Davis's motto, and that's kind of the the sub motto of the foundation is that every victory counts. So you know that, Dirk. That's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing you out on the trails and the, and, and the roads here. Hopefully, very soon. 
Thank you guys so much. I, I owe so much of, you know, my career and, and experiences and kind of goals in life to you guys paving the way. So thank you so, so much. And that was, that was awesome. Thanks well, so much. We appreciate your support yeah, and uh, thank, you, thank you. Yeah. We'll see you out on the trail. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. 